Uh, hey, again, if we've not met before, my name is John. I get to serve as the pastor. And uh, today is what we call Welcome Home Sunday, which really just means, hey, the summers are crazy and people are traveling and maybe some of you are still joining us online. Uh, but today's a day in which we just say, we're, we're coming back home. Like we're going to do the things that we know really do bring us uh, fulfillment and help us to flourish as followers of Christ. And so thank you for being here, even though things are a little bit weird and things are different. Um, I'm excited that together you've taken a step already to say, you know what, God is going to take first place in my life, at least on Sunday morning and, and as I'm taking that journey. And I'm just grateful that you're here. It's interesting because we're like a couple weeks into September. Uh, how many of you are just diehard summer people? You're like, if I could just find a way to move to Arizona, I would do it today. Okay, that's me. I, I literally have two weather locations on my phone here and Phoenix, just to remind myself in December that there's people who have it much better than I do, and there's opportunities there. Now, how many of you would say, no way, I'm four seasons people, bring on the snow, bring on the fall? I don't know where the rest of you fall, but the, <laughs> the ones who didn't raise your hand, you have to think about that later. Uh, what's interesting to me is like a couple weeks into the fall, I don't know what it is, like I haven't played soccer in a really long time, but I think about the nostalgia of fall soccer season. Some of you are in that, right? You're looking ahead in the summer, like, figuring out, are we even going to play soccer? Uh, I was not great at soccer. Let me just confess that way up front. In fact, I even tried to find uh, a picture of me from AYSO back in Caledonia. We played ASO for a couple years. Uh, I couldn't actually find one, which I think my mom loves me enough to just scrub all of that from our collective <laughs> family memories. I did find one picture of me playing soccer, though. That's me on the right. Not even kidding. That is honestly me. And uh, the funny part is that's my brother on the left. So I don't know who's better at soccer. I think it's obvious, but yeah, I was terrified of that. Um, that's the only one I could honestly find to be playing soccer. All that to say, I think about fall in middle school playing soccer. Here's what comes to mind for me. Uh, I, there was a couple of things I really loved about soccer. Honestly, I love the camaraderie of just being on a team. Like, you know what that feels like if you've played a competitive team sport. You love the feeling you get from a win. Like there's something supernatural that seems to bond you together. Um, I love being able to count on snacks every weekend. I loved it. Someone came up with Mountain Dew soaked apples. Genius. Like I was all about that. I, I don't know if I really thought about the games. I thought about the middle, which is the snack time. Uh, that was the second one. The third one for me was I, I really do love competition. Like I love just the the ability to go into a game 0-0 zero, zero and want to come out on top. And sure, I was in eighth grade, but I was like looking at the other team while they're warming up. Like, we're going to crush those puny ants like, like I was that strong and clearly that gifted. But um, that was my thought. So those are some of the things I loved. Here's what I didn't love about soccer. I did not like losing. Now, a lot of you would side with me on that. You're like, yeah, me neither. I hate when my team loses or uh, for some of you guys, NFL is back, and you're like, I hate when my team loses. Like, there's a, there's a, like a feeling I have that, that doesn't come any other place except when I lose. Uh, here's the catch about my eighth grade soccer season. That season, that fall, we lost every single game. Every single game, we lost. Now, it didn't matter how hard we tried. It didn't matter um, how many uh, like tablets I would put in my water before game, like steroid basically, like trying to get myself ready for the game as an eighth grader. Like it didn't matter how much vitamin C I put into my body. It didn't matter how well and how attentive I was during the drills. It just didn't work out for our team ever. The blue flames of Caledonia ASO were terrible. Okay, we were terrible. 
Now, uh, what is interesting to me, some of you are on the other side of the parenting equation and you have kids that are in sports. There's actually a lot of really powerful lessons you can learn from losing, right? From, from going a whole season and, and loss after loss. There's something about it as a kid that really there's lessons you can mine from it that should shape you. Uh, what I learned from that season of losing every single game was absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. I learned nothing. All I wanted to do the next season was win. Like, that's all I cared about was winning. I think it's interesting, you can look at this culturally as well. For most of us in our own lives, whether it's in work or in sports or just in life in general, we don't glorify losing. Losers don't get trophies. Losers do not get elevated. Losers often get forgotten. Losers often in your own workplace, like imagine if you celebrated, who had the lowest sales this month? Raise your hand. And everyone just go, yeah, good for you. You're terrible at your job. Like, good for, like awesome. Like, we do not celebrate losing. And in your kids as well, if you've got kids in the room, you do not say, hey, man, you lost every single game and it was all your fault. You were the goalie. Good job. Way to lose. No, we craft ways to get our kids better. You're like, all right, you're going to soccer camp all summer long, and I don't care if it's virtual. You're going to be out there kicking the ball against the garage or whatever. Like, we do not celebrate losing. Here's what happens, though, in our own psyche when we lose over time. Now, when you're losing in a marriage, you start to lose hope about, is marriage even a thing? Is it even worth it? Is this going to work out? Is this partnership really worth the investment? There's times where you lose in work and you feel like, not only did I fail at this sale, I'm a failure. It, it moves beyond just my performance on a review. It actually becomes a part of who I am. I am a loser. When you have organizations or churches that year after year feel like they're losing ground, not gaining ground, there's a sense in all of us, are we ever going to make it? Are we ever going to experience success? Are we ever going to have fruit? Are we ever going to see any kind of victory in this organization or in this church? But what we do instead of learning from that, instead of changing our direction, often what we do is we mourn the fact that we've lost and then we just keep aiming at victory. We just keep trying to win. We keep trying to use the same methods over and over again. Many of you know this. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? That's what we do, though, when it comes to our lives often. We, we just keep pushing for victory. We keep pushing to win. Can I ask kind of a bold question of us that has a lot of layers to it? What if we're pursuing the wrong thing? What if we're pursuing the wrong thing? What if victory and winning and success is not actually all that we've been created for? What if there's something much deeper, much bigger, much more important, much more spiritually significant than just figuring out how do we win in our lives? How do we win spiritually? And I want to take you to a group of people, Israel. In the Old Testament, God's chosen people were called out. Genesis 12, he, he says, you are built to be a blessing. And not only are you built to be a blessing, but I'm actually going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. I'm going to lead you to a promised land. I'm going to free you. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. God tells the forefather Abraham. He says, I'm going to do that for you. But there's a catch. You have to follow me. You have to trust me. You have to obey me. You have to hear my voice and do what I'm asking you to do. So Israel does this. 
And what ends up happening in Israel's life is they actually don't encounter victory after victory. They encounter failure after failure, Egypt after Egypt after Egypt. They encounter some really large-scale setbacks in their nation. What's interesting, if you fast forward into the book of Judges, I actually would invite you, maybe you've got a phone or you brought your physical Bible, I want you to turn right now to Judges 6. Uh, I'm going to pull it up here in mine. In Judges 6, we read about this group of people, Israel, who were constantly under attack and being defeated by this opposing tribe called the Midianites. The Midianites were a military superpower in that region. The Midianites had figured out how to wipe out smaller nations And even though Israel's in the promised land, they're in Canaan, like they're in the land of what's supposed to be victory, their local economy, their crops, their belief in God keeps getting crushed. These Midianites had figured out kind of this unique, advanced military superpower called the camel. And so uh, these camels, they would ride in. It is kind of cute, though, but it doesn't look very intimidating either. Like, I'm not sure how they scared off Israel with just those, but... They would literally come riding in. This is their tactic. We're going to ride in. We're going to literally go through their entire field, just ruin all their crops, all of their local economy, all of their provision for that that month. We're going to destroy it all, and then we're going to leave. They didn't even really have to fight Israel. They would just destroy the economy, and that would sap all of Israel's energy and resources. They never really learned how to fight back. Midian would crush them over and over again. Enter Judges 6, in which we find this this moment in which Israel's trying to figure out how do we finally overcome the Midianites? Like, we've got to fix this problem. God told us we're in the promised land that we're supposed to pursue victory, but it's not happening. And we find this really unique character named Gideon. Gideon is a farmer. Gideon is the son of a a dad who literally for decades has gone through this constant defeat, constant loss, constant Uh, economic disruption and Gideon has kind of learned the only way that we make it through this is if I hide if I just kind of like hide do my thing as a farmer try to avoid the Midianites coming to attack me and take the rest of what we have and so we find Gideon hiding in this wine press I want to read with you in chapter uh, 6 starting in verse 11 uh, this story It says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, not that Oprah, but another one, that belonged to Joash the Bezrite, where his son Gideon, here's our character, was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. That's not where you thresh wheat normally. This is like a stone structure he's hiding from the Midianites from, okay, just so you get some context of where he is. To keep it from the Midianites, verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, here's what he says, listen to this. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, we read the the clues the text gives us already about what Gideon actually is. Gideon's a son, Gideon's a farmer, and Gideon's a coward. He's hiding. He's trying to keep away from the Midianites. He's not sitting around the table gathering the strongest Israelites, saying, guys, we're going to band together. We're going to take them out. We're going to find out where they make these camel things, and we're going to go get some for ourselves. And then we're going to go back and attack Midian. That's not actually what Gideon's doing. Gideon is cowering in fear. Gideon is terrified that he's going to be found out and that all of his crops are going to be destroyed. He's looking out for himself. And yet the angel says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 13. I love how Gideon responds. He says, pardon me? Like, what? What are you talking about? He says, pardon me, my Lord. He replied, 
But if the Lord is with us, notice this question, why has all this happened to us then? If this incredible, strong God who's going to overcome Midian, if he's really with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? All the stuff you said happened in Egypt, like, where is he now? Literally, we're getting our, our crops destroyed by camels, and you're saying that God can deliver and overcome. This, these are not computing for me. He says, now the Lord has abandoned us. He's actually given us in to the hand of Midian. You keep reading in verse 14. The angel stops speaking for a moment. And this is kind of a clue in the text. Listen to what verse 14 says. You catch it in your Bible. You already read it. The Lord turned to him and said. It shifts from the angel of the Lord to the Lord's voice himself. He's trying to get Gideon's attention. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. Which if you're calculating Gideon's strength level, where would you rate it at? Like that big? <laughs> like he's hiding, he's a farmer, he's not equipped, he's terrified of these other people. God says, go in the strength that you do have and save Israel. Like I don't, do you sense the humor in this almost? Like save Israel out of Midian's hand. You can do it, buddy. Gather the strength you have and go do it. And Gideon's like, are you, are you serious? God says, am I not sending you? And this is Gideon's response exactly the same to the angel as he does to the Lord. He says, pardon me? Excuse me? Pardon, pardon me, my Lord, he replied. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And not only that, my clan is the weakest, but I'm the weakest in my own family. I'm the least. Like, I'm, I'm the lowest guy on the totem pole. I'm like 5'5", 130, like soaking wet. I'm not the kind of guy that you want to put out there. Uh, I've heard about King David slaying Goliath. That's not me. Gideon's saying, I'm not in that same category. Uh, the question, why has all this happened to us? Why are you asking me, God? Why, what are you doing for me, God? We've all asked that question. We've all asked, God, why is this happening to me? You said, here's the formula, I follow you, I do what you say, and life turns out for me. How many of you know that doesn't work? How many of you, some of you have tried that, right? You put both hands up if we ask, right? You've tried those kind of things. And the formula doesn't work for Gideon either. He's saying, okay, you said if we follow you, we're in the promised land, you're going to take care of us. Well, why does Midian and the Camel Calvary keep coming? Why are we still getting destroyed? Why are you ruining our crops? It's easy to ask this question on the other end of a job loss. God, you said, if I honored you in my work, if I was a good steward with my money, I wouldn't need to worry about a job. Now I'm laid off. What am I supposed to do with that? Spiritually, that disrupts your life. Uh, you said if I, if I got married and I stayed faithful to that person, no matter what, that I would have a long-lasting marriage and, and kids and a farm and all these other things that maybe you dreamed up. I don't know. And then you get divorced. God, you said, you, you told me, if I was faithful to you, uh, you wouldn't leave me single for such an extended period of time. You know I'm not okay with being single. You said that I would have a husband by now. That hasn't happened yet. And my, my clock is ticking, and I, I, I want to have a family. You know that. Why has this happened to me? God, I've served you faithfully over and over again. I've set up chairs. I've put up signs. But my family member, who's still far from God, hasn't shown up to church yet hasn't given their life to Christ. I haven't seen them in the baptism tank yet. Why has this happened to me? And you begin to ask those questions. Those are deep questions. Those matter. 
And how you answer that really does define the rest of your life. For Gideon, how he responds to this moment, I think, defines the rest of Israel's story. And what happens from here? What I want to do is I want to skip ahead to chapter 7. So if, if you're Gideon, and we're going to be in verse 1, so you can, get, you can turn there right now. Gideon, or uh, Judges 7-1. As you think about Gideon's story, he's the farmer, but he's saying, okay, God, you said you're going to be with me, but he's probably still like a mix of faith and fear right here. He's probably still calculating the odds for victory, saying, okay, we haven't won up to this point. Things are not looking great. God has now elected me, the weakest of the weakest, to lead our troops fearlessly into battle. Okay, like let's see how this pans out. Look what happens in in chapter 7. What I would think happens is that God gives them a really great plan. That's what should happen, right? God gives them a bunch of camels. God gives them like a sneak attack around Midian. Look what he actually gives them. It's not what I would have ever planned. Early in the morning, Jerubal, that is Gideon, all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Hold up. That makes no sense. Have you ever thought about that? I've read that verse a thousand times and I spiritualize it. I'm like, that sounds so good. If I'm fighting a military, I want victory in my military, I'm not going to say, guys, we just need to trim the the fat here. I'm going to say, everybody possible, grab your plow hook, grab your hoe, do something and go out there and fight. I don't care who you are, I don't care how old you are, we need you. And yet God says, actually, Gideon, hold up. Before you move forward, you have too many men. He says, I can't deliver Midian into their hands. Or Israel would boast against me, and they would say this, my own strength has saved me. I made it happen. See, God, we didn't need you after all. We have enough men to make it happen. We just didn't know. And now we have Gideon, and he's awesome. We should elect him. Like, that's the kind of the mode they would be in. So in verse 3, God says, Announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Would you read this out loud with me if you have your Bible? So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. What a story. Like Gideon, you are crushing your first job that God has ever given you beyond farming, okay? Great job. You figured out how to grow your army from 32,000 to 10. Well done. And that's the reality of the story. And even that alone would be crazy odds. That's like four to one odds against who, the amount of troops Midian had. But the story is not over. Verse 4, Lord says to Gideon, there's still too many men. 10,000. No, 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 no. We need to keep working it down. Whittle that down, Gideon. You got too many guys who are going to help you with this victory. Take them down to the water. I'll thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. Verse 5. So Gideon took the men down. He listens to God and he obeys him, takes them to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Kind of gross. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. So here's what God says to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you. Did you catch the number? 300. This is not like the movie 300 where it's like they're kicking people over and they have like a 12-pack. This is like farmers like Gideon, like weakest of the weak just got out of the field and figured out, oh, I'm supposed to be in this battle, I guess. Okay, see you later, guys. Like, they go for it. This is the 300 guys that are left over. He says, with those 300 that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. Leave. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home. 
but kept 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. That doesn't sound like a plan for victory to me. If I'm God, if I'm Gideon even in this moment, I'm trying to to figure out, okay, God, what did you really mean, and can I change that a little bit? Because I'm not liking the odds here. Uh, Just if you're doing quick math, maybe you've already done this. Uh, The odds when we started this this passage were four to one. Four Midianite soldiers to every one Israelite soldier. That's bad enough. You keep reading the story, the odds become 13 and a half to one. Little short guy in there as well. 13 and a half to one, okay? That's the odds. Now you keep going. By the end of the story, what we just read, the odds are roughly 400 to one. I don't know how good of, of, of a like, video game player you are with fighting. You're not that good. I don't know how good you are um, with your bare hands in a fist fight. You're not that good. You're not 400 to one good. There's no one that's 400 to one good. The odds keep getting worse, worse, and worse. Here's a critical piece of this story. God ends up delivering the Midianites into Gideon's hands. In fact, if you ask me, honestly, I don't know if it ever was about the number. I think it was much more about Gideon's faith and much more about Gideon's obedience to do exactly what God asked him to do. Here's the principle, and you can read the rest of the story in Judges 7. I would actually encourage you to do it. It's an incredible story. As you read throughout the rest of Judges 7, basically what we find is that as disciples of Jesus, if we want to grow, if we want to live in alignment with God's Spirit, if we want to truly grow up into maturity as disciples of Christ, here's what we do. We don't pursue victory. We pursue God. Big difference. You know the difference. If you really want to grow in Christ, if you really want to experience the kind of miracles that we see littered throughout the pages of the Old and New Testament, we don't pursue victory. Israel had already tried victory on their own terms, and look how it turned out. We pursue God. We decide we are going to obey you even when it makes no sense. What seems countercultural to us sometimes is exactly the culture that God wants us to live into. When we live a life like Gideon, what I love is that the weakest are elevated. The weakest actually become the conduits for God's glory. The weakest, the people who are least likely to make a real difference in the world, become the difference makers in the world. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like you've tried all the recipes and formulas for victory and you've still lost. Maybe you feel like you've run out of steam. Maybe you feel like today you're sitting here and you're like, I can't believe it's fall. I can't believe we just blazed through the last couple months. I can't believe that our, our country's in the situation it's in. I can't believe my family is in the state that it's in right now. Friends, I want to encourage you, don't pursue victory. Don't pursue winning. Don't pursue success. Pursue God. And often what comes on the other side of a pursuit of God is sometimes victory the way you planned. Sometimes victory doesn't come in the way you planned. Sometimes victory looks like failure. Sometimes victory looks like a step that makes no logical sense but makes 100% heavenly sense. Sometimes victory... (laughs) Looks like doing things that you think are going to contribute to other people around you being harmed, like trimming your army from 32,000 to 300 people, and you're thinking about, okay, what's going to happen to all them back there? And yet God delivers you into the hands, or delivers your enemies into your hands, because he really is the one who controls and rules and is the king over all of it anyway. 
Sometimes victory, it doesn't look like we think it's going to look. I love Alan Redpath. I want you to grab onto this quote. He's a writer about the Old Testament, writes about the battles in the Old Testament. He says this, any battle for victory, power, and deliverance, all things that I want. I don't know about you. I want more victory in my life. I want more power. I want more deliverance from, from sinful ways of thinking and living. I want those things from ourselves and from sin, which is not based constantly upon the gazing and the beholding of the Lord Jesus with the heart and life lifted up to him is doomed to failure. Any pursuit of victory apart from God himself is doomed to fail because we weren't created to do any of those things on our own. We weren't created to, to procure victory on our own. We weren't created to just be starving for success and when we have it feel like, I need more success. Because if you've ever gotten to that magic number of income in your head, if you've ever gotten into that house you thought, if you've ever gotten the perfect spouse or your kids finally stop freaking out all the time and you're just like, they're actually really well behaved for like a stretch of time. This is good. Like I, I'm, I'm a successful parent. Eventually you get to a place where you just want more of that and it's never enough. That's exactly how victory is apart from God. That's why as disciples, we don't pursue victory. We pursue God. We chase after him. And sometimes he brings victory. Sometimes it looks like failure wrapped in victory. Sometimes for us, we have to keep stretching faith and we don't see the end for a really, really long time. But we don't buy into the, the cultural narrative that victory can be bought and sold on our own, that we can achieve it. We believe like Gideon. We step into places of faith like Gideon and say, God, I know you're asking me to do this. It makes no logical sense. This is where we're at, but we're going to follow you anyway. We're going to step out and do what you ask us to do. There's a lot of things that you can get trapped into believing victory is. I'll just, um, I'll go first here. In my own life, the last year or so, about a year ago actually around this time, I was really wrestling with the fact that I was bad at, at procuring victory on my own. I was bad at harvesting my, my identity and my value out of my role. And I didn't really know, like even as a pastor, I was like, man, this is just not bringing the fulfillment that I thought it would bring. It's not bringing the, the success that, I, that my friends are experiencing. And I was really, really wrestling with that. At the same time, God kind of intersected my path with a, with a good friend of mine named Greg. And Greg and I began to meet every single week for sometimes two hours a week. And he's a trained counselor. He's a pastor. Um, he's a coach for, for other pastors. I, I began to meet with him. And really, if I could describe to you, what was that six-month period like, that journey we went on? It was basically unraveling my version of victory. And it was really forcing me to ask the question, John, are you pursuing God or are you pursuing success? Sometimes you'll get success when you pursue God. Sometimes he'll give you the desires of your heart. But if you just pursue victory, you're going to miss God pretty much every time. So I journeyed through that, and it was a painful process. My journal is full of some really hard things to write down, some really tough things to, to rectify in my own spiritual journey. On the other side of that, though, uh, that journey wrapped up around February, <laughs> and then March, some things changed in our world. And I honestly think some of the struggles that some of us went through would have crushed me had I not gone through that journey. I mean, I love Easter, favorite day of the year. Didn't see one of you on Easter, besides dropping off some cookies, which was awesome. But not, not quite what I had in mind for our Easter service. Instead of preaching to a camera and trying to figure all that out, just didn't have the same energy to it. 
And if I hadn't gone through that journey, I think there'd be a big part of me that felt like just a giant failure, a giant loser, a feeling that maybe God was done with me, and this was kind of the beginning of the end of that season. Coming out of that, though, God has just continued to draw me like Gideon to just say, God, what, John, what I'm asking you to do is listen to my voice and obey what I ask you to do. That's success. That's victory. That's effectiveness in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God. And so I think about that. I think about even the trap sometimes churches get in of, of wrestling with what does victory look like. Sometimes it's, for us, it's a magic number on Sunday. Sometimes it's having the best band or the best speaker. Sorry, that's probably not going to happen, but you're stuck with me for longer. Uh, so I think about that. I think about some of the other things. Sometimes it's in having an incredible social media presence or having the most shareable content. Others of us, maybe it's having the best-looking building in the region. There's a lot of things that we can say victory is. When it, you boil it down, victory is these things that we put up in banners every single week. Victory is seeing zero needs among us. Victory is seeing zero unconnected in community. People that were far, didn't feel like they had a home anywhere, feeling like center is a place where they get to be home. Victory is zero unfulfilled callings. Many of you have journeyed through that. Maybe you're in the middle of that, just figuring out, what is my purpose? Newsflash, I'm 45, and I still don't know what I was created for, right? Like that, you feel like that right now. We desire to see zero unfulfilled callings. We ultimately desire to see zero lost people among us. I've got a list of names that right now, is, if, they, if they died, I do not know where they would spend eternity. I want to make sure that the center's a place where there's no questions about how to get there. No questions about how do I come in contact with that grace and that saving power that people just know. They walk in, there's something unique and different. Zero lives unchanged is, is our vision. Ultimately, zero gods before God. Saying, God, there's a lot of things we could pursue. There's a lot of things we could chase, but we're going to chase the one thing that matters most, and it's you. We're going to pursue you. All that to say, that kind of leads into this conversation. Uh, many of you know that that I want to kind of bring you up to speed on. If, if this is your first time at Center, you're like, why are we talking about this? I want to give you some context for uh, this conversation we've been having over the last couple of weeks about our building and the future of the facility here and those kind of things. Because it really is wrapped up in this Gideon story for me. It's really become crystallized even in the last like seven, eight days that God was drawing us to this passage at this time for this reason. I want to give you kind of a spiritual timeline. So in a, in a month from now, the church, this church was planted about 14 years ago, which for many of you has made an incredible spiritual impact in your lives. And that's true for me. My family was a part of that initial launch team, and some of the first experiences I had in ministry were at Zion Christian School. And I remember that. And it's obviously a huge honor to come back and be able to be a part of this community another time. That was 14 years ago. Now, 14 years have passed, and leading up to this moment, there's been some really challenging moments, some challenging seasons even, some challenging years even, if I can put it candidly. Uh, leadership transition, multiple facilities, multiple philosophies, multiple ministries, multiple initiatives, multiple missions, trips. Like, there's a lot of things that have happened, a lot of them good, some of them hard. And I look back at that, and one of the things that has stayed constant for us just as a community over the last, I would say, probably decade, for some of you, you, you feel this, would be the search for a, a sense, we know nothing's permanent, but a sense of permanence in our community to be able to reach people seven days a week. Like, we would all probably shake our head and say, yeah, that's pretty important. Like, the reason that I don't live in my house one day a week is because I want to live there, right? 
it kind of matters to me. I don't, I don't just like put up furniture for a few hours a week and then take it all down and go somewhere else. Like I really believe I'm supposed to be here in this community on some level, maybe spiritual, maybe not. But I think we all collectively sense that as a church around the next step of, of our journey as a community, as our, our journey as a church uh, that God is moving in. And so if you kind of rewind about eight years ago, eight years ago, uh, a guy named Jeremy, he's not here this weekend, but Jeremy had a dream that in the Family Fair Plaza, which pretty much if you live anywhere near this, you all know where this is. It's kind of the older Family Fair. It's like down the hill, 84th and Byron Center. There's like six or seven other retail spots in that same strip. There's a gym on one side of it, uh, Chinese on the other side of it. So those are not correlated. <laughs> I just think it's kind of ironic. Um, you go from one to the other. Just don't go the other way, right? So anyway, <laughs> there's a dog groomer. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to go through all of them. But uh, Jeremy had a dream that Byron Days, which a lot, again, a lot of you know, we've served there a bunch of years, uh, kind of the, the big festival we have in, in July, that Byron Days, people would be coming to that plaza, worshiping God, hearing the gospel, and meeting other people. He had, he had a dream, and it was that plaza. It was in that parking lot that that was happening. That was before really any retail spaces were online for us as a church. There was really no good options. He just was like, woke up, had this dream, told his wife, Melissa, who serves on our leadership team. That was kind of the end of the dream. That was it. Fast forward a couple years later, there was this moment about five years ago in which there was a space in there um, right around nine, ten thousand 10,000 square feet that opened up, and there was like potential to move into that space as a church. And there's a lot of excitement. There's some energy around that. As I've gathered from stories from you, some of you were totally on board with that. Others of you were totally not on board. You're like, nope, that's not what we're supposed to do. We, that's kind of too big for our britches there. And other people are like, we need to do this. God is telling us to do this. We need to go for it. Now there's prayer as a part of that process. There's worship a part of that process. There's even kind of a Jericho moment, like praying around the building. Like some of you are a part of that story. Uh, there was some real investment into that spiritually. Needless to say, that didn't pan out. And so fast forwarding, move into this school four years ago, last, or four years ago, July. Move into this school, um, which has gone really, really quick, right? It felt like, wow, I can't believe it's been f over four years. Four years ago, with the potential to buy this space, like this school that we see, not even the parts that we access to, to own that moving forward, it's become clear kind of through the partnership with the school and even just our own team that that's probably not a great fit. And there really doesn't seem to be a clear timeline for when that's going to be. Um, no knock on the school. They're just at a different place. They've had their own leadership transitions over the last couple years. And so that's kind of where we are. What I felt just over and over again as a leader is this is still a really important step. God, I have no idea how it's actually going to look. And so last summer, I take a study break for a couple days in the summer and just get away, take my Bible, read. Sometimes it's at home, sometimes it's out other places, and just say, God, would you speak to me for this next year? I just want to hear your voice. Kind of like Gideon, like, speak to me. I want to do what you're asking us as, as a community to do. So that happens, and this is, don't quote me as like a prophetic vision. This is not a prophetic vision. This is just like a pure daydream. I'm like sitting there reading my Bible, and I was like, man, it would be really, really cool to celebrate our 15-year anniversary in a permanent space, more permanent space. That would be October next year, October 2021, which, again, two years ago felt like, oh, God, I can't wait two years. It's so long. Lord, I've already, we've already waited this long. I, I, I can't wait another two years. 
so I thought about it and didn't really think about it again. I just was like, that would be kind of cool. So fast forward to this spring, tons of momentum as a church. You probably felt it January, February, even the beginning of March. Sure, we had some obstacles still ahead of us, but there was like an exciting spirit just about what was happening. And we were ramping up to Easter. We were inviting people. A lot of us were praying for people to come to Easter. And then again, our world changed. Things shifted. And we hadn't met um, until back in July. We started meeting physically again. And I was like, God, what are you doing? Like, I sense all this momentum. I was like, okay, this is the year. We're going to figure out this next step. Okay, now we're all shut down. Okay, I can't really meet with people in the same way. Okay, we can't really share in this, this vision as a community. What are we supposed to do? And uh, so kind of on a whim, kind of just out of frustration with the Lord, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to email one of my broker friends. We've talked about some properties in the past. Um, I just want to see what's out there. Maybe COVID has not been kind to some other business, and maybe we could use that for God's glory in some weird way. Um, I'm just going to ask him. So email him. Next morning, he responds. like, actually, I'm really glad you reached out. There's a space that I haven't put online yet that I think would be a great fit for a church like you guys. I was like, what do you mean a church like you guys? <laughs> it's kind of a weird loaded, loaded thing to say there, Patrick. Um, but what he meant was, and he kind of interacted with it, he's like, you guys are just different than every other church I've talked to. Like, you're willing to do weird stuff. You're willing to be in places that not everyone else is going to go. You're willing to step out in some bold moves. Like, you're just different. Even interacting with some of your leadership team, it's just different. I was like, all right, I'll take that as a compliment for now. Let me see the space. Fast forward, go do some walkthroughs in the space. It is a fitness studio. That's all I'll say. It is a fitness studio um, in that plaza. And so one of the interesting, with poles all over, um, one of the things, just to add that context clue, um, we walked through that space and immediately sensed, hey, maybe, maybe God could do something with this. Doesn't look like I thought it would look. That's an understatement <laughs> the first time I walked through. Um, but maybe God is in this. Maybe God could do something with this. And maybe this is the right location because God seems to be affirming this over and over and over again. I just want to pay attention to it. Maybe he's just testing our faith over and over and over again, but that's okay. But I sense that maybe he's in it. And so we did some walkthroughs. We prayed in the parking lot as a leadership team. Some of us even prayed last Thursday night. Uh, we were, this past Thursday night, one of, in that gathering of prayer, uh, someone else commented to me that has only been coming to this church since December and said, actually, before we ever moved to Byron and started attending center, uh, we had prayed about that next step as a facility, knowing that was something you guys are praying for. And we had like a, a mental vision of that plaza as well. I said, okay, that's worth paying attention to. Maybe God is speaking in this, maybe he's moving in this. Um, all, all along, basically since the end of June, we've been having kind of contract talks with, with this plaza and this space, trying to figure it out. Again, it's not even on the market. There's no lease sign. You can't find it online. It's just a space that we're gonna, we're, we've been trying to work with this broker on. And so since that God was in it, and, uh, but let me just be real clear, it is a big financial jump from what we're doing now. And so in my head, I was kind of playing the Gideon card. I was like, God, come on, why are you giving us a space that could work, it's in the right place, but it feels a little bit out of reach, like a little bit too big for us even to take a jump. It wasn't as big as some of the other places, but still it's a big jump. Uh, fast forward to uh, like the middle of July, uh, I'm sitting in a meeting, I get an email 
uh, from our finance director. Her name is Susan. She kind of oversees like the zero collective finances. And she said, can you come see me immediately? <laughs> Which again, not, not good. Like I don't like getting those emails. Like our finance person saying, come step into my office, please. So I step in and she says, hey, Center uh, just got a $30,000 check in the mail. Uh, can you verify that's even real? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'll verify. Again, thinking that's definitely a decimal issue. Like someone hit the period where they shouldn't have or put a comma in the wrong place. Like it's probably 3,000. Still meaningful, still huge. Um, email a person back. They said, yeah, we just felt like God was leading us to give you this money. Whatever you want to do with it, you can do with it. Okay. God, what are you doing? Right? I was asking that question. Blown away. I don't know what kind of emails you get on Tuesday mornings. I don't get those. <laughs> Never got that. That's a first, first for me. Uh, I haven't got them since, but I want more of them. Like it was just a, it was a miracle moment for me. I just had such a sense of, wow, God, you are moving in this. I'm not sure what you're doing um, in this process. I even think about, and I was sharing this vision with someone on the phone on Wednesday, and they, um, they're a local pastor in our area, not really affiliated directly with what we're doing, but part of the same denomination. They just said, uh, John, we, I don't know why. We just sense like God's in this. We want to send you a check for 800 bucks just to say, we bless us. We think it's the right thing for you. And I said, okay, again, I don't have those phone calls every Wednesday morning either. So a couple of those miracle things have taken place. Um, and so what I want to do is show you just kind of conceptual drawing. Don't, don't freak out about this, but uh, I want to show you this is the space that we're currently looking at. And so as you see, um, it's minimalist. <laughs> That's a one, one way to put it. Um, and I think even pre-COVID, I think, wow, that, that wouldn't work or that wouldn't fit. God has blown up my doors of what works and what fits. And I'm just staying in my lane, listening to him and obeying him. And so uh, this is, it's kind of a dual unit uh, space. This would be kind of clearing it out. Um, with the potential for these adjoining suites, which leases are up in a year or two years from when we would sign, which could be this fall, um, that we would blow out and add even more space beyond that. So that's kind of just the drawing. I just want to give you that. Some of you are visual people, and you're like, I need to see it, and, and that's it. Uh, I was going to show you a picture of what it currently looks like. That would be distracting. Let's just put it, <laughs> just going to put it that way, okay? <laughs> I love you enough to not. Uh, you can drive by it anytime. Um, and so that's kind of the, the concept of it them, itself. What I want to say in the last few minutes before we, we're going to close with the worship song and then kind of move on and we'll talk about what this means. Um, here's what I want to say real clearly. And the reason we're not going to, we're going to talk about the financial side of it in more detail in the next coming weeks. But what I want to really share with you is just kind of the vision of it and say, I, I sense this is where God is leading us. I can't say because ultimately we're a community. And on some level, we decide, is this what God is saying to us? And are we going to move forward in faith on that? It's not just my decision. It's our decision. We have to move forward. But here's what I sense God leading us towards. Here's what I want to say clearly. We could get a building. We could get a building. But if we don't keep growing into a church that bleeds for lost people, we lost. Not worth it. There'd be a church probably better suited for that, to be honest. Now, we could get a building, but if we neglect the poor and the overlooked in our community, we lost. Not worth it. We could get a building, but if the building conversation ends with, oh, finally, I don't have to set up a chair anymore. <laughs> finally, I get to be more comfortable. Finally, uh, this, that, or the other. I mean, we have a thousand of other reasons why it may be more comfortable. 
But if we don't prioritize God's calling in, on us as a church for this community over that comfort, we lost. There are bigger things at stake. And ultimately, if our heartbeat isn't seeing zero lives unchanged for Jesus, I, I really believe, just you need to hear this on my heart, I really believe God will just give our resources away to another group of people whose it is. The mission is too important. The value of the people in your life who you are praying for to come to Jesus is so much greater than just having a place where we can set, not have to set up a chair again, which we'll still have to do, by the way. But other, other parts of that are true. And so I, I think about that, and I think about as a pastor how often I hear stories of just churches that had a sense of passion for lost people, had a sense of passion to want to grow into maturity as disciples of Jesus, but lost it along the way and got focused on a lot of other things. And there's, those doors are closed for them now. They gave away their keys. Those churches just don't exist. And if we want to live another vibrant 15 years of ministry in this community and even greater impact than the first 15, friends, this has to be our heartbeat. When I think about a building, I don't think about, oh man, it'd be nice to not get there as early or have to flip the lights on myself or all these other random things. I think about addiction recovery workshops happening in that space. I think about teaching English to refugees in our community. I think about ministry seven days a week. Doesn't that just feel good to say? <laughs> Maybe just to me, but I just think about having the lights on 24-7, not because we just want to run up the electric bill, but because the ministry is just turning over constantly. There's people in there being ministered to, meeting Jesus for the first time. I think about after-school programs for, for kids whose school is not a positive experience, and the only place that they have a loving adult who knows Jesus in their life would be by coming into our church. That's what I think about. I think about holding weddings and funerals for those who can't afford them. Just opening up, saying, we'll take care of all of it for you. And I'll raise my hand to do it for you. Like, we'll, we'll find somebody to make that happen. I think about being an extension site for local schools who don't have resources or can't get Wi-Fi or can't space out kids or whatever they're trying to figure out this fall. And just saying, hey, we got a space. You can use it. We'll, we'll open it up for you. Just use and, and take whatever you need. As you read through the rest of the story of Gideon, and I'm, then I'm done. Judges 8-4, there's this line. Because they, uh, the Israelites eventually push the the Midianites out. They, they overcome. They secure the victory. But what happens is God tells them, keep going. Keep pushing. Keep, keep chasing them out. Don't just kick them out of your city. Get them out of your entire area. Like, kick them out of the region. They don't belong in my promised land, which I created for my people. And so there's a line in Judges 8.4. I'm just going to throw it on the screen. You already, if you know the story, you may remember this. It says, Gideon and his men were exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit. Let's be honest. There's probably some of us in the room that feel the first half of that. <sighs> I'm exhausted. Personally, spiritually, relationally as a church, whatever it is, I feel exhausted. I want to remind you that God's call is not to just rest and, and stop and pause at exhausted. But his call for all of us is to keep up the pursuit. What does he pursue? Lost people over and over and over and over again. He say, yeah, but don't I matter? Yes, and your life grows exponentially when you are passionate about what God is passionate about. That's just true. Many of you already know that. That's not brand new. So I think about that exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit. And I just want to ask you the question today, wherever you're at, what is God asking you to do? 
what is the call on your life as it relates to this initiative moving forward in, in this way? If, if you sense God in this, what is God asking you to do? Uh, I'm going to invite Ani and some of her team just to hand out these commitment cards as I'm talking here in a moment. Um, as they're handing them out, I want to give you just some practical elements of this conversation. Here's what I want to say. Some of you are like, give me numbers, please. I am dying for numbers right now. Give me some numbers. I need some numbers. Please give me some financial pictures of this, okay? And I'll give you a little bit, and I'll give you more as we keep going. So I don't want you to miss the vision of this. I don't want us to get lost in some of the details uh, beyond what God is, I think, saying. Here's the human reality. Right now, because of some of those kind of miracle gifts, is the way I describe them, and because of your incredible over and above generosity over these last six months, don't miss that, right? That is the only reason we're having this conversation is your faithful giving. Some of you have stepped into that in new ways. Some of you have started giving in new ways this year. This is the only reason. Right now, we have around $80,000 in the bank that can go towards this project. All right, $80,000 towards this project in the bank that we could use towards this build out, towards uh, the lease and things like that as we move ahead. To actually make this a reality, to actually see that concept into fruition and see people meeting and lights on and heat and cool and all the random things that come with uh, being a part of a more permanent facility, if we want to see that happen, we need to raise an additional $79,000. Some of you, let me just be honest, some of you are like, that's it. <laughs> like, I could probably write a check right now for 10 grand and cover like eighth of that already. Some of you are like, uh, $79,000? Like, are you serious? And some of you are in the middle. Maybe that's a stretch for some of you. Maybe it's not. That's just reality. We have about 80. We need to raise around 79000 over the next year. Not today, over the next year to make this build out, this process, and this facility a reality. Can I be extra honest with you? In my own flesh, that feels impossible. Like to me, just personally, just crunching numbers sitting here, I'm like, that's too big. Luckily, we don't serve a God who thinks like I do, right? Like if there's ever a time to just say amen, that is it, right? Like we don't serve a God who thinks like that. We serve a God of literally unlimited capacity and resource. And if he wants to do something, he will do it. But what will stop him is our unwillingness to move ahead with him. Honestly, that is the only thing. If we sense collectively this is the right thing, and we sense God in it, and we take these commitment cards, we pray over them, we say, okay, we're, this is how we're going to move forward. There's nothing stopping us. That is, we have the key to unlimited finance, unlimited resource, and God has positioned us for that. So in your hand, you have a commitment card. I don't want you to fill it out or do anything with it right now. We're actually going to receive these commitment cards. You can drop them off if you won't be here, but in our services, or um, you can send them into the office. We'll send them out online as well um, on the, at 927, so it would be two, two Sundays from now. And what I want you to do is prayerfully consider, that again, that question, what is God asking us to do? I'm not asking for uh, just a little bit. I'm not asking for a lot. I'm asking for what God wants you to do, that you fulfill that. Again, that doesn't rest on me. Uh, Lindsay and I are having that conversation in our home. God, what are you asking us to do? How are you wanting to stretch our faith in this season as well? And on 927, we're going to receive those cards and take what we're just going to call a first fruits offering, a way to kick off this season. 
say, we're just going to give cash, check, whatever we got, and just say, God, here's our faith. We're starting this season of trusting you and discernment by, by just giving, by going first and saying, God, here's where we're at. So 927, those are two, if you are in this area, I invite you to be here in person if you can. If not, you can join us online. Um, I want you to be here, 927, that's happening. Again, the question is, what is God asking you to do? You have the picture before you, and hopefully I've done a clear enough job of casting the why. Why would we even pursue this in the first place? And again, even when it comes to this conversation, we are not pursuing victory or just more success. We want to pursue God in this. And that will always stretch our faith. That will always cause us to listen closer and obey more deeply. And that's what I want. Again, there's a lot there. And I'm like talking way longer than usual. But it feels like an important conversation. And so what I want to do is pray. Then we're going to sing. And then I thought the best way to just wrap up our time together is by taking communion. It's the one meal, it's the one practice that centers us as a community, that reminds us of why we're doing this in the first place, that because God is so kind and faithful that he went first, he gave his own son. He said, I'm going to lay down my life so that people can know what real life is like. They can taste salvation and rescue. And so we're going to take that together. You have a, a set of elements underneath your seat as we sing this next song. I invite you to take it. So let's pray. God, as we have already prayed, I, I just stand before you right now completely surrendered. And I'm just asking on behalf of us as a church, would you speak? Would you call out a new sense of courage in us? Would you call out a new sense of boldness in us? Would you raise our level of obedience to you in this time? And we leave the results up to you, just like Gideon. In a time where the economy feels fragile. Maybe even our own jobs are in jeopardy. Maybe we don't have a job. Stepping forward into this Gideon-type campaign doesn't really make a lot of logical sense. But at the same time, we trust that you're working in it, and we want to follow that. So we pray that your name in us, personally, would be made great. That through that, you'd allow us to bless our community our family, our friends, our neighbors who are far from you. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.